Hello, sci-fi fans. This is Nana Visitor from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and you are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. If you like what we're serving here at the Sci-Fi Diner, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi, spelled the right way, and by Audible. Get a free audiobook when you sign up today, audibletrial.com backslash sci-fi diner. Engage. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, where we serve up interviews, news, and our view on the world of science fiction. Come, grab a chair, and enjoy the conversations. I'd say we've got an unexpected guest. Rose, where we're going, we don't need Rose. I've got a bad feeling about it. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. Hi, I'm M. Sierra Garcia. And tonight, on tonight's show, we are going to be reviewing, or I shouldn't say reviewing, really kind of rewinding and looking back at over 30 years of The Voyage Home, Star Trek The Voyage Home. And this is a continuation in... In our in our track, pun intended, through the movies of Star Trek, and uh, probably up into the current movies. Although we did kind of review those as they came out, so at least into like the old movies, into what they call the uh, what is that the uh, Prime Universe? What are they calling that in Trek Miles? Yeah, and then isn't the new one the Kelvin Universe? Yeah, yeah, something like that. So we've done the Kelvin movies already, but uh, we're working our way through the uh, Star Trek movies about one a month. So this kind of continues that. And to help us do that, we're bringing on a very special guest. Miles, would you like to introduce our guest here? Yes, please. I would. Ladies and gentlemen, we're delighted to be talking with sci-fi fantasy author Ms. Mary Fan, author of several books. We're probably best known for the Jan Colt and Brave New Girl series. Ms. Fan, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's aw- to it's awesome to have you. Um, what I think is awesome is that you you you're you're a sci-fi fantasy author but but really you have some deep roots in music that's right yeah tell us a little bit about that and how did that how did you go from music to writing sci-fi or do you still do both um i don't write as much music now as i'd like to but in a way i still do both i guess i can't really untangle the two in my own mind because i've always just love stories, whether it was through the written word or through music. And it's been that way since I was a kid. I was reading books before I could like, you know, walk basically. And I, you know, have been playing the violin just as long. I started when I was three. And so these two things have always been a huge part of my life. And so I guess creatively, I would always want to tell stories. Sometimes it'd be through words and sometimes it would be through music. And so when I went to college, I actually originally wanted to do creative writing, but they rejected me from their program three times. So I kind of got the hint and I ended up studying music instead. But after college, I found myself, you know, kind of wanting to go back to writing, which is something I'd done a lot in my earlier years, like as a kid and in high school. And so I kind of just sort of dove back into it. And when I dove back in, I sort of dove in hard and I've been going ever since. And I've sort of noticed by accident, that I tend to incorporate a lot of music into my books. That wasn't intentional. It's just how my brain works, I guess. 
Uh, so like the music, music like plays into the plot of the story. Is that kind of. Um, my characters tend to be involved in the arts in some way, I guess, because I've always been involved in the arts. So even if they're not a musician, they have some hobby in it. Or, for example, when I describe sounds, I tend to be pretty musical when I do that. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. So, And I- you studied opera? Yes, I did. Um, I actually was in my college's opera performance of The Return of Ulysses. I played Minerva. Wow. wow that's pretty awesome. <laughs> wow. That's a delicious role. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Oh, wow. man. We were we were debating whether you could actually sing the uh, the opera from Fifth, Fifth Element. I actually could when I was a teenager. You Unfortunately, could? I don't have those notes anymore. No, but I know. the range. Yeah, uh, that, that, like when I was younger, I had a much uh, higher voice. But then, as I developed my voice more, funnily enough, I lost my whistle notes. Mm. But the notes in be- like the lower notes became richer. Yeah, which is, <laughs> I guess, yeah. just how my voice developed. So opera, opera wasn't just a college thing. You studied it before? I started in college, um, and that was mainly where I did it. Since then, I've mostly just done choir because it's less of a time commitment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so tell us a little bit here, uh, science fiction. Why science fiction for you? Um, I can trace my love of sci-fi back to a single book, actually. So I always loved, you know, fantasy and magic like any kid. But I remember when I was about 12 years old, I discovered Jack Williamson's classic Legion of Space. And I actually discovered it through the Wishbone version because I, you know, was a huge fan of Wishbone as a little kid. And I read all the books and then I read the Wishbone version of Legion of Space. And I was like, this is awesome. I want to read the real thing now. So I went to my library and I checked out the book and I devoured it. And then I devoured everything else that Jack Williamson wrote. And when I ran out of those books, I moved on to his contemporaries. And from there, a monster was born. <laughs> and here you are writing all these years later because of that incident. Yep. That's awesome. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit uh, about the stories. Uh, Miles mentioned the the Jane Colt uh, trilogy that you have out. And, uh, and obviously, that's kind of central. But you've written a lot of other books. Tell us a little bit about some of the worlds you, that you created for readers. Sure. So the first book I had published was the first book in the Jane Colt trilogy, Artificial Absolutes. And that was a space opera future just because I always loved outer space. You know, I loved Star Wars, Star Trek, of course, um, Stargate, all the stars, really. Mm. Um, And so when it came time to write my own sci-fi book, the first thing I knew was I wanted to take place in space just because space is fun. It's vast. It's Got endless possibilities. And I also wanted to explore the idea of artificial intelligence because that was just something that interested me a lot. I, you know, read a lot of philosophical essays back in college about like the nature of consciousness and such. And so for the Jane Colt universe, I kind of wove those two things into a kind of space opera-ish universe. And I guess I guess it was kind of trying to follow that tradition because I wanted to sort of add my own voice to that canon I'd always loved so much. Um, But I also wanted to take a slightly different spin in that I didn't want it to be about the captain of a starship or the trained crew of a starship. I wanted to take more of a layman's perspective. So for my main character, I picked this office girl who didn't know anything about, you know, 
this version of Starfleet or anything and just sent her on a crazy adventure that she was totally unprepared for. Cool. That is awesome. Thank you. And so, and and people, uh, and these books are still available like in Amazon and I see that it's available as a trilogy as well as one book. Yep. So are there any, any plans for you to continue to dabble in the uh, Jane Colt universe or are you going to be, are you moved on from that? I've moved on for now. Um, my <laughs> most recent release is actually a fantasy instead of a sci-fi, although it's a dystopian fantasy. So I guess you can still see the sci-fi like influence there. Is that the, uh, is that star swept? Uh, no, that's Flynn Nightsider and the edge of evil. It just came out last month with crazy eight press. Awesome. Um, the and from them. It takes place yeah. in a future where basically there's a dystopian world run by those with magic. Okay. Awesome. And again, all, all those are available on, on Amazon then if you want to buy them. So Okay, I just ordered Brave New Girls Tale of Heroin <laughs> to Hack for my friend's 13-year-old daughter. Literally yes. ordering it right now. Thank you. Can you tell this us a little bit really about This is really cute. Yeah. I'm, I'm paying attention, but I saw this, and I'm at, even at work, I'm a big proponent of um, of Oh, there's girl. There are women who are applying for the data scientist position. I'm probably going to break the law and let them interview first. Like, <laughs> it's just so important. And I love this. Actually, I might get a couple copies and just hand them out at work because this sounds awesome. There you go. So it's pre-order right now, but I'm excited. Yay. Thank you. Sure. And just, I, I kind of wish I could just hand you money instead of going through Amazon. <laughs> there you go. Can you tell us a little bit about the Brave New Girls? Uh, this is a this is not the only book, Girls Who Hack. You've done other Brave New Girls series, right? Right. So there are collections of short stories. So each one is its own like standalone collection. Um, and it started in back in I think 2014. Paige Daniels, who's another um, sci-fi author, she's also in real life, you know, an electrical engineer and a huge proponent of STEM education. She and I were just chatting one day, complaining about the lack of women in tech, both in the real world and in fiction. And the thing is, what we read in fiction often influences how we see the real world. Like, you know, we see ourselves in these books and we imagine ourselves as these characters. But if we don't have that kind of mirror, then we don't see the possibilities as much. And so we were sort of complaining about this. And then we were like, you know what? Let's do something about this. Let's put together a book full of stories about girls doing techie things in sci-fi worlds because we don't see enough of that. And, or when we do see them, they tend to be sidekicks and love interests to some male hero. And it's like, nah, nah, (laughs) let's not do that anymore. (laughs) Would would the brave new girls be kind of targeted toward, toward young adults or, or like teenage teenagers? Um, Yeah. Our original intention was to target it toward, teenagers and tweens although we kept the content clean so that if younger kids wanted to read it um parents would feel comfortable with that too and the reason we chose i guess the tween teen audience is because studies have shown that little girls like elementary school girls love math and science but something happens to them when they become teenagers that causes them to lose interest so that by the time they reach college very few of them are declaring majors in stem fields and it's probably all cultural because there's no reason why they should lose that interest other than that, you know, usually when you become a tween or a teen, that's when societal pressure starts to kick in and you start 
doing things that you're expected to do rather than things you want to do. I have a, I have a 12 year old niece. I'm thinking these books might be great for her. So, and she's academically close to being gifted. So I think this, 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 this would be a good encouragement for her. So I, I, might, I might probably get these, these books myself for her. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, there's no some problem. really, there's the tales of girls and Ga- tales of girls and gadgets. And then I love this title, the stories of girls who science and scheme. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We had fun with them. So it's a collection of how, how many of you have gone in together to write these stories or does it vary from book to book? It varies from book to book. Each book has about 20 short stories. Um, and like I said, each one is standalone. So it's just whichever one we're putting out that year. And do you try to put like one out a year? Is that kind of the goal? Yeah. Like originally when we started, um, we did a, um, not Kickstarter, Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. And we were originally just going to put out the one book, but then we were like, we had a lot of fun with that and we want to do more. So we're doing more. That is, that's awesome. So if people want to find out more about you and the various works you've coming out uh, and to keep tabs on what's going on in the world of Mary Fan, where would they do that? Um, the best place to start would be my website, www.maryfan.com. Awesome. And then that would direct them everywhere else they need to go. Yep. Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. So we, All the things. All the yep. things. We do, need to, we do need to talk to you before we go into our discussion of Voyage Home. You had a chance not that long ago to sit down and watch Rathacon with William Shatner. Yeah, that was awesome. He's um, been doing these, I guess, Q&As accompanied by a movie screening um, of Wrath of Khan. He's been sort of touring it, and I had the opportunity to see the one that came to Newark. It was a lot of fun. He is a lot of fun on stage. I can't believe he's like 87 or something because <laughs> he's a riot. That is awesome. And so did you learn anything new as you kind of heard him talk about Wrath of Khan? Um. He didn't talk as much about the movie as so much as his career as a whole. Part of it might have been because we didn't have a very good moderator. And so I think he was just like pulling out anecdotes because the moderator didn't really give him many prompts. And so I did learn a lot of anecdotes about his life as an actor and some of the hijinks he got into. Very, very cool. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure. I knew that he was touring that and he's going to be at short leave, which we're all heading to. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. So, so I I had the pleasure of watching a screening of Mad Max, the original Australian one, that was hosted by um, Patton Oswalt, who is a great author and a great comedian, and he talked through the whole movie, like giving us all sorts of neat and interesting stories about the production of the film because he just happened to have the director on messenger and was getting live feed from him. So I was curious, I'm curious if, if, uh, if Shatner is a, a talker at movies. Um, that wasn't really the format. It was like, they showed the movie first and then he came on stage in his Q and a, I guess it's a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, well, going? annoying. It's still like Pat knows while it's talking to the director from Australia. <laughs> this is amazing. So that was always fun. That's, That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> Very good. Well, let's move into our discussion of this iconic movie, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Miles, do you want to take it away and give us just a brief summary again to just refresh those who are listening that may not have watched the movie in a while 
and just to uh, keep us up to date. Or ever. I was chatting with somebody at work who was like, oh, there's other Star Wars, Star Trek movies? <sighs> yes. Yes, there are. <laughs> yes, there are. It's a huge body of work. Yep. So the short, um, I guess, synopsis. Uh, so Admiral James T. Kirk is prepared to take the consequences for rescuing Spock and stealing and then losing the Starship Enterprise. But a new danger has put Earth itself in jeopardy. Kirk and his crew must travel back in time in old Klingon bird of prey to right an ancient wrong in the hopes of saving Earth and the Federation from certain doom. It was uh, released uh, November 26, 1986, and um, estimated budget was $25 million. It grossed in the USA um, about and, almost $110 million dollars. And probably worldwide, probably both uh, worldwide and and, uh, and USA, a total of one hundred thirty-three uh, million dollars. That's awesome. So, why don't we do a little bit around here? Where where was everyone when they first saw this movie? And you know, what were your thoughts on it then? And maybe going back and then rewatching it, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um. Uh, um, let's talk with you first. What uh, do you remember? What when was the first time you watched this movie? Uh, the weekend it was released in the multi- it was the first multiplex in my neighborhood, Ooh. and I was uh, a freshman in high school, and it was the coolest thing in the world. Actually, no, I I would have been a sophomore. I would have been a sophomore, and I secretly went because I still was a closeted nerd. At the time, and it just it was an, an extension, an opportunity to sh- to just get lost in 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 science fiction, which was so delicious and limited at that time. So, and I had my Happy Meal that had the prizes from it as well. That's awesome. I I think I have I think I have stuff from Happy Meals from the first five films. That's fun. Cool. That's fun. That stuff it's has crazy. Some, yeah, it's crazy. Mary, how about you? Uh, when did you, when did you first encounter this film? I was actually something of a latecomer to the Star Trek fandom. I didn't start really getting into it until about two or three years ago, and it's actually kind of thanks to Shoreleaf because I came to Shoreleaf originally just because I was seeking sci-fi fantasy fandom um, and my audience, and you know they're all so into it there that I'm like this looks really cool. Like I never watched the original series because I guess we just didn't watch it. And I'd seen some episodes of the next generation, but I really wasn't that familiar. So then about two or three years ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch all the Star Trek. And I did. And I remember watching the voyage home and thinking this one is really good, especially coming right off the heels of, you know, the sort of dark movies, um, wrath of Khan and search for Spock. It was, you know, lighthearted. It was fun. And, it was it was really good. Awesome, Miles. How about you? Uh, I remember this. This was around Thanksgiving when it came out. Uh, we had uh, went to visit my grandparents. They were living in Brooklyn, New York. Because I remember seeing the movie with a Brooklyn, New York uh, crowd in there, and they were really into it. Um, I was loving the other two Star Trek movies, and so. I was thinking after I saw this, this is definitely a lighter, 
more humorous than the other two, but at the same time, it, it still had a strong message in it. But uh, the strong message was was not. Um, it, it, it didn't. Um, it wasn't too preachy, so you couldn't appreciate the humor and the character moments. But at the same time, it was still powerful enough to get. Yeah, there was no hidden message in this movie. I mean, it was pretty obvious it, that they were <laughs> they were trying to do like, like in like it wasn't Superman four preachy. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, when yeah. Quest for Peace or something like that was called. Yeah, and he threw all the nuclear weapons, the nuclear weapons, um, <laughs> into the sun, and then Lex Luthor. It just that was just like the worst way to point out the foibles and the destruction of the planet but this did it in such a nice a little bit cheesy but at least a very directly we know we're tongue-in-cheeking it here kind of kind of kind of story you know and i don't remember where i was when i first saw it i'm pretty sure i saw it soon after it came out of vhs so i would i'm guessing the late 80s is when i would have encountered it but I always recall that this movie out of the Star Trek movies I watched was one of my favorite. And I think it was my favorite for many of the reasons that Mary and Miles, you alluded to just the fact that you, you never would call, um, you would never call Star Trek comedy, but there was so much comedy within the Star Trek that made it just delightful. I mean, throw the crew of the Starship Enterprise into what was then modern day San Francisco and let's go nuts, you know, and it was just, and it was fun because of that. It made it humorous and it was just, it was, it was well-written um, it, from that aspect at the very least. It's really a joy to watch. It was. I was, I was even watching it. Um, I was watching it. I watched it last night again. And my daughter, who's not a Star Trek, comes walking in partway through during the hospital chase scene. And she was just rolling on the couch laughing at the entire mm-hmm. thing. You know, them trying to get out, people falling over each other and the, the, the clumsy, the clumsiness of it all. And she watched the rest of the movie with me, but you know, she just enjoyed that sort of, that sort of comedy that was in it. So it was a little slapsticky. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And maybe feels a bit more so now that because I mean, I think that was a little bit more typical of 80s movies. But, you know, you think of the lethal weapon and stuff like that that came out during that time period. It was probably a little bit more typical of that. And it was another opportunity to do something horrible to check off. <laughs> I mean, in the in the first movie, he gets hurt because a console explodes on him. In the second movie, Khan puts a, a, a SETI Alpha eel in his ear. And uh, this one, he, he falls off a high place. And, uh, um, yeah, it just usually... It's a common theme in a lot of these that, you know, okay, how do, how do, what, what, what bad thing could we do to check off this time? I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I That's didn't so either. That's so sad. <laughs> it's like, Poor guy. Let's hurt Chekhov. Yeah. So, so, so. He's Gordon, the Gordon... Sean Beam of, of Star Trek. Oh, true. That's <laughs> like, let's just kill That's him so off. Sad. So going I'm sorry, back, I went to a dark. No, place. that's fine. Going going back and watching this now, how does this movie resonate? Hold up? Do you feel that the messages are too heavy handed? In I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It's a very serious message, so you, you know it's. But at the same time, you you know you don't want to. Even when they're when they're showing the the video footage at the um, 
at, at the aquarium, that's even hard to look at. But uh, oh yeah, when they're slicing open the whale, well, yeah, it's, like, it's oh gross, gross, but but just heart wrenching also, and just uh, um, so uh, this is what Star Trek does best. It it it, it could take. What it did in the past was tell hard to tell stories, but kind of sometimes wrap them up in allegory or there, there's a there's a problem that they have to solve, but it addresses this social issue. And they have to, you know, there's this alien probe trying to talk to somebody at Earth, but at the same time it's 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 hurting the planet and they they figure out, okay, trying to communicate with humpback whales we don't have any humpback whales where how do we get humpback whales they figure out how to get them that's done very well this is something star trek has done many times before and hopefully it still will 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 talk about issues but but tell a good story at the same time uh other thoughts on that when miles is saying so i watched it from a different perspective because i watched it for the first time relatively recently so I didn't have that nostalgia factor, and I still thought it was a really good movie. So I'd say it held up pretty well. Oh, good, good. Now, the, the social commentary did seem heavy-handed to you, Mary, as you were watching it? No, and I guess because they – I mean, it was clearly there, but at the same time, it didn't get preachy about it. It was sort of, hey, this is what happens if you don't take care of you know your planet. Like, you're going to lose some of its best parts, and – no one got up on a soapbox and talked about it. The only thing we really got was Spock saying that it was illogical, and it is illogical. <laughs> True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about how about for you, Am? So, I I distinctly remember like watching on the science shows, like on Three to One Contact. It was I think it was still on, but I remember. I forgot about that, that show. I know. I love that show. <laughs> um. I find you can find them on YouTube every once in a while and it's it's glorious. Um I distinctly remember there being a lot in the news about um what was going on with the oceans, specifically the humpback whales and I seem to recall like everyone there are many other whales and you may choose the whale of your choice but humpback seemed to be the the biggest one going on and then there was an article I found today called 30 years ago, Star Trek predicted that the humpback whale would die out. Instead, they're thriving. And it goes on to kind of chat about how, like, it actually, it it didn't, you know, make people wake up and go, oh, my God, we've got to save the whales. Thank you, Leonard Nimoy. (laughs) Um, It was more of a, like, it was, it was a rare use of celebrity and, and franchise to bring light to an actual existing in our universe issue. Um, it was not necessarily a crossing of the, a breaking down of the fourth wall, but just kind of like somebody slid a note underneath the door in the fourth wall and said, by the way, um, you're screwing stuff up and you suck and we need to fix this. <laughs> uh, it's true. It's true. And, uh, and, and you don't know the impact, you know, 30 years after that, you know, how people change or maybe don't change through that. Um, but it was neat. To, it is certainly neat to hear that. And I'm glad you found it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear that. Um, I was doing some reading about the movie as well. And one of the things that came up that I didn't think about when watching it is that this is, this is a Star Trek with no real villain. 
unless you count the alien probe as a villain, but it's not really a villain in the sense that we, not like Khan was a villain or not like the Klingons were a villain in the uh, search for Spock. Humans of the past were the villain. They screwed up. Yeah, I guess. But no real central villain. I guess character is a villain. It kind like, of harkens. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Oh, no. I, one thing I noticed is that 90% of the film took place on Earth, which I don't think, I, I don't even recall a single, maybe like one or two episodes of STTNG. I know, and maybe like one or two of DS9. Just nobody really focused on Earth except to go back to Starfleet. So, but this whole film, it must have been the cheapest. Well, they needed the budget for the whales, right, but right. it was mo- like ninety percent on the planet Earth. Yeah, is this the uh, is this the first time that Star Trek messed with uh, time travel, or did they do that in the original series, Miles? It, it, they they did it in the original series, uh, as far as the method of time travel, where they slingshot around the sun. They did it in two episodes, once by accident, and once. Um, they're, tr- they're, they're trying to help launch a Gene Roddenberry um, pilot TV show, but never really went off. The, it, it never, it never went, it never went though. So they, they have, they, they, they did do some things with time travel before. Um, they, they went back to the to late sixties in, uh, in what well, would have been con- contemporary, con- contemporary with when the show was uh, being filmed. Well, Miles ask- is our resident Trekopedia. Yeah. But M, you're our, um, our 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 fashion and uh, um, pop culture uh, expert. I was going to ask you as far as things in this movie that maybe doesn't hold up because it's a product of its time. So a lot of the vernacular is. I, I even think remind. I remember thinking while I was listening to the movie, thinking, "Oh my God, we talked like that." <laughs> <laughs> there was, there was a certain, and there was a certain way of like dealing and talking to people and behavior. And I remember it was kind of the resurgence of the punk movement. That um, it was right about that time when I was in high school, and so the dude on the bus with the huge boombox, of just being a total d bag, and like I remember. I remember being on a bus here in DC when someone was just being a giant, you know, D bag and there was not much you could do. And I kind of wished I could do a fucking neck bench and see if that would work. <laughs> I read a bit of trivia that Leonard Nimoy based that scene on something that actually happened to him in New York city. Like some guy was just walking down the street with like this huge boom box. And he was like a nerve of that guy. I wish I could like perform a Vulcan nerve pinch on him. Oh, and that's so he awesome. did. <laughs> that's that phenomenal. Awesome. That is great. Well, what's is funny is the guy who played the, the punk rocker on the bus, he was actually an associate producer of the movie. And <laughs> so, uh, and he wrote the song that uh, they, they, they played on, played in that scene. Now they, they had somebody else record it, but um, he, he contributed a lot to that. I mean, originally Spock was going to, after he nerve pinched him, then turn the boom box off. He said, well, what if I turn it off when my head falls down on the boombox? And so um, that's what they did. That's awesome. Nice. That's great. You know, that's that was just, that's one of those classic scenes. I mean, and I think this film has so many scenes that kind of that that kind of pop up. I uh, you know the the t- the time when he's at, when he's asking him to like 
go, go, go act. They're standing in the street corner. He's like, go act natural. And they're like all wander around aimlessly, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I, I adore Scotty with the computer. (laughs) (laughs) And then the, and then bones hands him the mouse. By the way, I have, I have that computer and it still boots up. Um, I, and he holds the mouse up, computer. Like if he sweet talks it, it's gonna start working. <laughs> right. And like, why don't you just use the keyboard? Oh, how quaint! <laughs> yeah. But and, even, even backing up in that scene when he first arrives to the plant and he's acting all indignant that the plant manager doesn't know that he's coming, just hilarious, hilariously delivered. I don't think Scotty ever gets to be like the focal point of something in any episode of anything. So that was, I, maybe, maybe it was, he realized that and just, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to roll with this. I'm going to take it for all it's worth and just have a good time. And it, it's clear that he enjoyed calling McCoy, his, his assistant. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> oh. on McCoy's face. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my. Yeah, so that was that was a favorite scene of mine. Um I love the uh the scene where the um oh the the whale uh, biologist, what was her name in the movie? Can't remember. Oh my. I Miles. literally just finished Jillian? watching it. What'd you say? Was it Jillian? Yeah, Dr. Jillian. Yes. Dr. Jillian, thank you. At least someone was paying attention to the names in the movie. Not me, obviously. But uh but Jillian, and then that the, the whole conversation with her, like figuring out who they really were, like the meal at the restaurant when she like says, "Oh, so you're from outer space," and you know this whole and that whole dialogue, and then it ends up being true, is kind of a it's funny to watch that unravel. It's very eighties exposition. It is, you know, it is, it is, and then Spock swimming with the whales in his tidy whities. <laughs> maybe he, maybe the whale singing to that man or talking to that man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do remember cringing seeing him in his underpants and thinking, "Why god why?" <laughs> but again, I was 14. So right. the concept it just no. It took me a little bit to realize because he was in white and he's and the way it's filmed through the water there, everything is like has a white a whitish hue to it. Took me a little bit, even the second time or the second or third one, how many times I watched it, watching this latest time to realize, oh yeah, he is in his underpants. It's not just his white legging pants that he had on his kimono type outfit that he was wearing. But I don't, I don't think he had trousers under there. And I just, and I remember thinking today, like. That poor man just died and came back to life, and all you could find him was a robe and some really nice suede boots. <laughs> Apparently, maybe that's what well, everyone maybe that... else on Vulcan had trousers, but clearly no spare trousers. They don't have a trow to spare for Spock. Maybe, uh, maybe scientifically, he's still kind of acclimating, and his body needs room to breathe. I mean, he's oh, just boy. rejuvenated, and so that robe gives him that freedom. Freedom. Yeah. Well, they weren't expecting to, you know, they thought it would be a boring trip back to Earth. They weren't expecting to time travel back 300 years to the past and have a even, have have to try to save the Earth. I know, but even then, like, 
Man, you've just come back from the dead. Would you like some pants? <laughs> yes, I would. Thank you. Maybe they should be space pants. Oh, look at you fitting it into an episode. There we Nicely go. Space done. pants. Where's Gwen Stefani <laughs> oh, when you need her? But Oh, my stars. Uh, Mary, you, you saw that Saturday Night Live skit. I don't think I have. Okay. So, oh. uh, so, so Tyrion Lannister from, of course, um, Game of Thrones is on Saturday Night Live, and, they, and he sings a song called Space Pants with Gwen Stefani. He's also called Peter Dinklage. He is, Peter Dinklage. Right? I, never call, I never call actors by their actual names. Em, you know that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, they do this song called Space Pants, and it's pretty hilarious, and it's come up in our show numerous times. Yes. Right. I'll have to look that up. You will have to look it up. It's a, it's a, it'll be a good waste of three minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe like six because I watched it twice the first time. I saw. There's it's a great. little cameo of for, of Gwen Stefani as well, and I always I always respected her and just how her she lives her silliness. They both brought it. I love. I it was. Give yourself a good 10 minutes to enjoy it. <laughs> if you don't watch it before shore leave, we'll make sure to ask you about it then. All right. So, <laughs> so right. Uh, what other, uh, what other scenes kind of stuck out to you in this movie? I mean, we, we hit some of our highlights here. Whenever Spock tried to invoke uh, the colorful metaphors and just what would come out of his mouth whenever uh, <laughs> oh, he would talk. Bless. Oh, I know. <laughs> They aren't the hell your whales. <laughs> <laughs> Gracie's uh, pregnant. <laughs> that was a one, that was a cute moment. Yeah. One damn minute, Admiral. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that was funny. Just that was. Did, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Even Kirk had you know didn't always make good use of them. I mean the whole. When he was called a dumbass, and the best thing he had was, well, a double dumbass on you. I mean, right? <laughs> just some good silly stuff there. Right. I liked when he sold his glasses because he knew he was going to get them back in the future. <laughs> and then the guy offers him a hundred dollars. Okay, is that a lot? And <laughs> exactly. And the dealer has a look on his face like, nah, not really. Uh, okay, we'll take it. He just completely like screws him over to his face and acknowledges it. So, like the worst and best guy ever, maybe. Oh, I'm looking up other science fiction films that came out in 1986. I have a I have a question though. Why uh, in this movie? It seems that out of all the Star Trek cast, the character is Spock seems to be the one that is more socially conscious or environmentally conscious than the other characters. Is there a reason for that, do you think? He just grew from the environment in the last movie. Uh, well, I did, and I did think about that, that maybe because of the genesis growing up through that environment, that he has a fondness or a connection to it that maybe the others don't. Yeah, I never thought of that before. So the Vulcans themselves are kind of a conservationist species. They don't speak more than they need to. They don't use more than they need to. They don't like if, if there's no, if there's no logic in it, why do it? And I, I want to say that I, I remember from episodes past of, of their interactions in TNG and in the original series, there were comments 
about how humans have treated their planet and the recovery of such God willing, that's an actual thing that will happen. Um, I, I feel like that comes from their, their very nature that they, if it's not logical, it, it needs to have a logic to it and to create an environment that destroys the actual environment seems uh, without, it has no logic. It has no point in it. Right. That's my, my, my train of thought with that. No, it's good. Mary, any thoughts? Hmm? Oh, I was going to say, I feel like Star Trek as a philosophy is pretty conservationist in a way, like the whole thing with the prime directive, you know, it applies to alien cultures, but Mm -hmm. it could apply to, you know, your own world as well. Just, you know, don't interfere with the way things are supposed to unravel, which is kind of conservationist in a way. And I feel like the voyage home is very, I guess, Star Trek philosophical in that aspect, in that it's all about, you know, reaching out to this entity, even though it's, you know, threatening your world, like, you know, making peace with it, communicating with it. Like any other sci-fi thriller, the first thing you do is send up some planes with bombs. Mm -hmm. Right, right. They really can't do that because it's like knocking out all their power and everything. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's interesting, too, because the the... You know, humans always think they're like the bomb diggity of the universe, right? But, but you have here, it's a very, maybe humans aren't the center of the universe. You know, this is in something in a world where we tend to be very human centric and we don't really care about our impact. Now suddenly these whales become core to and the lifeblood for the future of humanity. Yeah, it challenged, you know, our preconceived notions of us being the only intelligent, you know, life forms on the planet. And Spock says it would be, um, I forget what the exact word he used, but arrogant or something that humans are the only intelligent life on Earth. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it, 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 you know, it is very Star Trek and it challenges that. Yeah. So- in 1986. And I will say that. It it is true. It is the only film that came out that year that like made you actually think. Aside from Aliens, um, Aliens came out that year as it well. Did come out that year, and yeah. that made you think about like horrible things. <laughs> but there's The Fly, which you know makes you think about you know messing with genetics, and then the rest is all like there's Short Circuit and Howard the Duck, The Wraith, Maximum Overdrive. What well, Transformers came out? The first their first like animated film. And the rest is just kind of fluff. So as I, as I'm looking at this list, I think I'm thinking to myself, they, they really did a neat job of taking, taking a a franchise and carrying the story forward. They still gave us an epic tale and they brought it to a level that we could totally embrace and have fun with it. And the tongue in cheek and a little bit of slapstick, but still a serious message but not feeling like they're on a pulpit. And I it's 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 not the best of the movies, but to me it's the most endearing and my favorite. And it wraps up a uh, it, it it's a good wrap up for the trilogy we've been following since Khan. I mean, Khan is the one that started this road down through the whole Genesis project. Mm-hmm. And then we had of course the search for Spock and now the Voyage Home. And these these movies all work together as a trilogy and it, and it, and it, and it's a good wrap up to bringing them home and 
Not only that, but it puts Captain Kirk back in his rightful role, right? He gets demoted back to a role that he absolutely loves doing. Yeah, I mean, this really gives him Kirk a story arc throughout these three films is um, him being back where he where he needs to be. That's in the chair of Starship. Mm. And he gets and he gets the Enterprise back. Is it really a punishment? No, not really. Yeah. Well, I, I I wonder. You know, we, I mean, we're, we're kind of fast forwarding the movie a little bit, but but if like the Federation Council president and some people are like, yes, they save the Earth, and no, we're not going to really punish them, but let's have a little fun with with Kirk. He screwed with us a lot over the years. Now we're going to have our let's let's have some fun with 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 Jim Kirk this time. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I just I just think. The, the this trial they have it, it's nobody's seriously going to think okay they, these people just Jim Kirk and his crew just saved Earth we're not going to throw them in jail we're not going to we're not going to take their commissions away um, but but maybe, maybe we can have a little fun here I don't know that's just kind of where my mind's going that was kind of the way you read it that that ending scene yeah just kind of like the Federation president having a little fun with Kirk and just uh, you know. The only person, you know, we're only going to charge you with disobeying direct order and you're going to be demoted. But we know, you know, we know you. It's what you wanted anyways. It's what you wanted anyway. It's what you do best. And where you serve, you serve society, the the, the Federation, the best. So we're going to put you back there. Yeah. That whole trial thing, I, I, it was, I, I think it was just just for show. Kirk doesn't get Fun the, fact. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'm. I made the comment before about how Superman four was incredibly preachy. It came out the year after. Oh, <laughs> wow. I was just flipping through like to see if this theme carried through. It did poorly, but it did. That's interesting. And I've, you know, I've, I remember the eighties being very focused on the nuclear, the, the pending, the buildup of nuclear, the nuclear arsenal and, and so I, I do see that. I do see that. You know, it's reflecting the concern of society at the time. This was the height of the Cold War, too, right? Right. I mean, when did uh, when did the um, when did the wall fall? Eighty eight, eighty nine. So it was after this. Yeah, and it's it's yeah. like you know, so the Cold War is still there, and you have the you know the build up, and and so you're seeing that reflected in our movies. Well, even in this movie, you have still calling early in the movie when when the probe is on Earth is is at Earth doing what it's doing. They're talking about parts of the Earth that are being hardest hit. They talk about Leningrad. Oh, that's right. It's true. They don't call it Leningrad. They, it, it, they, they change the name back to you know Saint Petersburg. So it's just an interesting that you know being a product of its time there. Yeah. I feel like they had fun with the fact that Chekhov was there too. Oh, oh they did. Yeah. They did. They call him a Rusky. We yep. got these Ruskies. Of course he's a Rusky. <laughs> that interview, by the way, is very 80s as well. The way that that. The way they interviewed him? Yeah, the way they interviewed Chekhov. And... <laughs> With the way too snug vest and yeah. the, and just, it, it was, it harkened completely back to the 80s. Yeah, there absolutely. Are definitely quintessential things that to me it gave it it 
it let me rem- it reminded me of when it was made, but it's still it was still warm and fuzzy to watch. Well, that exchange that well, where Chekhov and Hora are trying to find where the the naval base is and you have this Russian asking where the nuclear vessels are. I mean, it's this is definitely talking. We are looking for Alameda. Alameda, <laughs> where they have the nuclear vessels. <laughs> that it, the last time I the last time I was in San Francisco, of course we did that. <laughs> <laughs> and said, oh, "Excuse me, we are looking for nuclear vessels. Is Alameda?" <laughs> And people just looked at us funny. And then some older dude was like, oh, I get it. Star Trek. And <laughs> bought us a beer. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I, to this day, it's still my favorite thing to do when I go goofing around in, in, when I'm in San Francisco. <laughs> that is I mean, good. But, and you like sometimes the one time I went to the Alamo, I asked every single person who worked there, where's the basement? Because that's that's from Pee Wee Herman's. Great adventure, big adventure. That's right. And he, they tell him that his bicycle is in the basement of the Alamo, and they don't find it as funny. They they (laughs) don't. FYI. Wow. They and I feel like in this film we got to get we we got more FaceTime with some of the characters. I mean, we never get enough Uhura because because of her chromosomes, she just never gets that much screen time. Mm. Um, But we. Right, but right. like, like McCoy and Scotty get their fun little vignette, and George Takei with the when he's in the helicopter and he's talking to the dude. He's just and he's just so majestic. I love him. He looks and, so happy in that helicopter. I love it. Right, like he's just having the time of his life. Oh, so joyful! To get that extra time was just very, very cool. I do have a question because I read this um, in earlier versions of the script. If you remember to um, Star Trek three, um, as Spock is growing and the planet's growing and he goes through Ponfar and Savik helps him out in a couple of, in the original cup, uh, probably like five or six drafts worth. And then they cut it out. She was prego with his, with his kid. I read that. That's interesting. I I, I do. I, I have read that. As well, yeah. I need a little fanfic on that. I need somebody. <laughs> I need somebody to tell that story, because you know, seventy-five percent Vulcan, twenty-five percent human. Does that? How strong is the human side? Can now, it what, supplant the extra Vulcanness? I think it would depend on where the kid was raised. Yes, too bad we never got that story. I will say I was a little bummed that they left Savick behind because yeah. was such a great character in Wrath of Khan, but then she just kind of fell away. But that was the, t- I, and it's still something that you struggle with, with good, strong female characters. They are ancillary. They are secondary story. They very rarely are in the forefront or get taken along on the mission. That is true. However, th- this movie did something the th- first time in Star Trek. We-, we had a female starship captain, and she was a woman of color. Oh, when, that's when, right. When the when the probe comes right? to the solar system, she, her her and her crew are the first ship to face it, and she is the first female captain in Star Trek that we see. 
You know what's kind of sad? I watched this movie for the first time in, what, 2015, and when that shot came up, I was like, oh my god, a woman of color behind the helm of a starship. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is 30 years after the movie came out, and it still feels revolutionary. <laughs> right? And that's a bit... That's kind a, of sad. That is, that is a bit <laughs> is sad. sad. bit sad. Like you'd think we'd have come much farther by now that you'd see that and be like, oh, just another woman of color, you know, as the captain. What's the big deal? But unfortunately, we have not reached that day yet. No, we have not. That's interesting. And I didn't even think about that, but you're right. You're right. Um, certainly, we had some strong female characters in this movie, but uh, even so, they, uh, and uh, Em, I didn't think about it, but you were talking about the balance of the characters and the time they got, the crew got, who are stilly, still got kind of less time than some of the other characters did. Never thought about mm. that until you brought it up. I and I do love at the end, Jillian. You know, she she makes out with Kirk like Kirk does. He makes out with everything. Um, <laughs> but she's like, "Oh, I'm off to my ship." Well, wait, you're not. What? And he's just all. She's just like it's that moment of no, I'm getting dressed. I'm gonna go. Bye. She's oh no, I've got my own mission. See ya. She <laughs> totally ditches him. She does. And it dawned on me in this watching, like oh, she just. Heisman him. This is great. This is wonderful. <laughs> she she was a very independent, like I I don't think I've seen that behavior before. And like you see it now, but in in that kind of cut like the in when you see a relationship between a male and a female character, it's you in, in it just wasn't anything that I would I remembered in the past, but now watching it a million years later thinking she totally bailed. She has the upper hand. Way to go. She does. She has hands. Yeah. I reveled in that for a good minute. Yeah. I love that scene too. That entire courtroom scene, both the beginning and the end. I couldn't help but think of the, 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 the um, star Wars cantina scene a little bit. Because you have yeah. all these, because of, because you have all these different alien races kind of packed into like one location, and they seem, they seemed overly excited. Like you were drawing attention to how different they were, and they weren't like it wasn't the it wasn't like the Romulans or the Klingons. It was all these other races that you never hear about in Star Trek. I feel like some of the I guess prosthetics or puppets they used. It kind of looked a little like the Cantina aliens, too. And I don't know if it's because they use the same puppet shop or what, but I was definitely getting Cantina vibes. Yeah, I agree. It was, it, it was the technology of the time. It's what you had. Because um, I remember working at Paramount's, uh, the Paramount Park System, and I learned how to do the makeup for the the TNG characters and the DS9 characters. And some of that stuff, even in the 90s, the technology, like when I look back, I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like, this is crap you can buy at Michael's. So if you in the 80s, that kind of uh, the technology behind those kind of effects, there wasn't a whole lot of money put into it. My first thought was, oh, this is the only scene they had cash to be able to do effects makeup. Like the Klingon stuff they had, but somebody like might have had like six hundred dollars extra budget and was like, I'm gonna make six green people. This will be amazing. <laughs> I I think it lends to the technology of the time. They, they even had some puppets to to kind of fill that scene. So those may have it, been Henson. 
Because if you think back to that time period, that that was they were the zeitgeist of 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 puppetry. True. They were always on the forefront and doing amazing things. ILM did did most of the effects for uh, this movie, from what I read. Okay. They did a great job with those whales, though. I was like wondering, it's like, how'd they do that? Is that a real whale? Is it not? That's yeah, a good bu- question. They built two animatronic whales. They're both about two feet long. Uh, most of the footage of the whales is, is with with those two animatronic ones. And I think they, they built a partial full size at the end of the movie. When you see the whale swimming past uh, our heroes, uh, it's just a section, you know, a partial, but um, uh, yeah. So that, that, that's, that, that's, that's what they did to create the, 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 the effect with the whales. Then that's they did a great job. Yeah, they what did. It was part where uh, Spock was swimming with the whales. Do you know if that was a real whale or if they had an animatronic for that or if it was some other movie magic? I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, I think it was blue screen or something at the time. It The way he was touching it, because I, I noticed that too. Like, I wonder if it must have been practical, but it must have been a practical, like just a sculpture where the eye was articulated. Because he was, the way he was holding his hands were very... Not like he was touching something flat, but he was actually touching something very textured. So I actually have a little bit right up on that. Uh, it says, showing the contribution of the special effect technicians, set builders and editors to make the film, the sequences where Spock jumps into the tank with George and Gracie and Kirk reacts while on the tour conducted by Jillian is a masterful example of behind-the-scenes artistry. No less than four locations were required to make that scene work. The real Monterey Bay Aquarium... An ILM created blue screen environment, a swimming pool in El Segundo, and a set at Paramount. So through the editing tricks of sleight of hand, it all appears to be the same location in various sequences. Wow. There's actually a Google entry that says, what did the whales say to the probe in Star Trek Four? And what did they say? <laughs> I don't know. I'm clicking on it right now. Can you translate whale? Sure. Uh, Google can translate Klingon. It can translate whale. Uh, Can Google translate uh, Klingon? I didn't know that. Um, so thanks to internet, it's all a whole bunch of like smart asses. It's not really an answer, <laughs> of course. But it was worth the click. Yeah. It was. I think they left it intentionally ambiguous. Yeah, like I think they didn't want us to know. I yeah, agree. I, th- I think I, I think that's what the writers just wanted that. To- we just use our imagination. What, what do they talk about? Interesting. Interesting. I feel like I wonder if they, when they got in the water, they were like, Oh my God, this is so clean. This is amazing. <laughs> have, have you, George, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Gracie. I know I can, I, my asthma's gone. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're just thinking that because asthma has been bad for you this week. Yes. But like, <laughs> To, if I could go back in time, like 200 years, and see what it would be like to breathe that air as yeah. opposed to what we're breathing right now, that would be nice. I would feel good about that. I'd also be really bummed because there's, you know, no real toilets, <laughs> and I would be in a corset, and Lord knows that's just a waste of time. That's awesome. I wouldn't be able to own property, and I'd be somebody's, you know, wife. And making babies, and that's all, and that would drive me crazy. That would drive. Not that it's not, not that it's a bad thing, but like right. knowing what I know now, if I went back in time, I, I might murder somebody. It, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> well, is there anything else we should talk about regarding this movie? I mean, we talked about many different aspects. 
of it. Um, anything else that stands out to you, Mary M. Miles here? When the movie opens, um, this is uh, earlier that year. We lost the, the the space shuttle Challenger and those astronauts, and so when the film opens up, there is a dedication uh, to, 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 to the astronauts, the challenger. And, and I was, on the DVD I have, it has some bonus footage and, and, and Harv Bennett was talking about um, that and just said when they first showed it, he wasn't, they weren't sure what, what people were going to think when they put that in there. But he said a lot of people were, were very emotional in a good way that, that, that they, paid homage to the to the crew of the challenger that, that they had lost uh, this that past year i didn't even notice that so it's it, just as soon, pretty much as soon as the movie opens another thing and i'm glad they didn't do this but early on there was serious consideration given to having eddie murphy in the movie and maybe they're, they're gonna offer him the role of the of the cetacean biologist but he ended up turning it down um and it, and Catherine Hicks just was so much better, but that was something they were seriously considering at the time. Eddie Murphy was one of the big biggest stars during the early mid eighties. I think it would have been a very different film if they'd done that. It would possibly have been more laugh out loud funny, but it right. would have lost some of its like heartfelt. Like it feels very genuine. This movie, like you know, it's funny, but it also means what it says. I feel like if they'd cast Murphy instead it would have been a lot more slapstick. It would have. I agree with that. They also, you know, in conjunction with that, they also talked about having the Klingon bird of prey decloak like over a football stadium during the Super Bowl. And they would have, and they, and making everyone believe that it was like part of the half halftime show or something like that. Hmm. I didn't hear that. They did save a lot of money just on, on, on effects. You don't see the, you only, see the bird of prey a handful of times and, and only maybe once on earth when it reveals itself, when it stopped the stops, those whalers, which was but an awesome scene, by the way, that was a great mm-hmm. scene. Uh, seeing the uh, harpoon bounce off of it. But, uh, yeah, the ship, you didn't, you only, most of the time the ship was invisible. George and Gracie were originally going to be called Adam and Evie. That would have been a little too on the nose, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have. I like George and Gracie. But, but all right. Well, anything else we should be uh, delving into before we wrap the show up? No. The only thing that really bugged me about the film is that the um, the tank that they had the the humpback whales in, it's, it's just too small. There's no way. <laughs> it's just too small. Suspend your disbelief. I can't. No. (laughs) Science tells me no. Science (laughs) being a total nerd tells me that's not possible. How can you fit two humpback whales in that kind of space? Like, there's just that part of me that can't take it. Like, this is just too small a space for those giant, beautiful creatures. (laughs) Do you know who can answer that question? I bet the Okudas could answer that question. I'm sure. The other thing that I noticed, too, the whole, like, uh, making this movie kind of on the cheap is when Spock had his his um, the the headband on his head. It was really easy to tell that they did not bother to put the prosthetic on him. <laughs> uh, true. And I looked for that today. 
And I thought, well, those ears are expensive. They're oddly at the time, at least in the nineties, when I was putting them on like stupid teenagers to walk around the park, looking like a, like a, like a Vulcan or a Romulan. They were expensive. Yeah. So they're like, oh my God, we just saved like six weeks of shooting ears by saving this time. And he could just get like makeup and then go. Awesome. And he probably saved time. He was directing, Leonard Nemo was directing this movie at the time. So he probably saved time not having to uh, get those ears on and just, just freed him up to direct the movie and act when he, when he, he had to act in the movie. I don't know why that was important for me to look for, but it was just, it made me joyful to see like, oh, look, it's his real ears. But you really have to look and nobody has that kind of time but me. No, no, absolutely not. So um, I, I apologize, universe. Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, any other thoughts? I guess the one thing that bothered me was how easy the time travel was in this movie. Because they made it seem like you just punch in some numbers, swing around the sun, and you can go to whatever time period you want. And I'm like, well, in that case, why isn't Star Trek a time travel show if it's that easy? <laughs> that bothered me right? a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. I wonder if it's the volume of fuel that you need and the mathematical calculations to ensure that you go back to the right time. Because in other like iterations of Star Trek, it's usually pretty hard. It's some transporter accident or some mega alien causes it. Here, they're just like, yeah, let's just swing around the sun. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. True. Miles, any final thoughts here? Um, some great, great uh, dialogue in this movie. Um, McCoy, as usual, has some of the best lines. Um, he says something to the effect when he's trying to ar- ar- argue Kirk out of not doing this. He goes, oh, so basically we just travel back in time get the whales, bring them back with us so these whales could tell this probe what to do with itself. And Kirk's like, yeah, pretty much. That was always enjoyable. Just whatever McCoy was going to say, usually it was going to be funny. Um, He's just so cantankerous and he joyful. He is. His Even- exchange of Spock uh, about uh, talking about what, 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 you know, life, death, and you know, Spock says, I can't really talk to you about it. You've never died before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and Spock's like, excuse me, doctor, I'm, um, I'm getting distress call- calls. And McCoy's like, I don't doubt it. You know? <laughs> no, there was a lot of good lines from that end. Mm-hmm. There's something about the character itself, too. That, like even Carl Urban really delivered it in the Calvin delivers a very what's the it's a, a a very nostalgic um mccoy yeah and i i really hope that it's true that he spent endless endless hours of watching uh deforest kelly and making sure that he he nailed it and in 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 having spent having watched the kelvin universe so much sooner so much more recently than um the original series universe um it 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 just felt like mccoy there was no difference like i see a difference in kirk i see a little difference in spock but i'm very pleased that the future as carl urban gets to play mccoy will get the same i i feel like the same kind of mccoy we had growing up yeah 
Awesome. Well, very good. So where would you rate this track in the track movies that we watched so far? So we've only watched four so far in this kind of rewatch you've been doing. Um, where would you place it? Uh, would it be a, you know, let's put it out of four since we have four movies that we're kind of banking them against. M. Oh, it's, it's my favorite. It's your favorite miles. It's my favorite. Oh, I would give it, um, three and a half uh, humpback whales. Okay. And Mary, where would you place it in the line of the first four movies for you? Oh, that's tough because Wrath of Khan is also so good, but this one is, I don't know. I like them for different reasons. I feel like Wrath of Khan is a better film, but this one is more enjoyable to watch. So those two can be <laughs> to me. That's, that's probably a good assessment. I would probably pick this as being my favorite, but you're right that Wrath of Khan, perhaps the better written story. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I think we did a good job of kind of reviewing this movie and rewinding it and rewatching it and discussing it. Uh, before we go, Mary, can you remind us once again where we can find out more about what's going on in your writing world and and, and everything else about you that we want to know? Sure. Um, go to my website, www.maryfan.com. That's M-A-R-Y-F-A-N. And there I have all the info about my books and such and also links to my social media. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight as we discuss this film. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. It and, was a blast. Uh, and people, go give her your money. Go on Amazon right now. Yeah, yeah buy her yeah. books. <laughs> give her your money. Just send, just send her a check. <laughs> don't even buy the book. Just, you know, whatever. No. And if you, if you want a chance to meet Mary, she's going to be at shore leave. We're going to be at shore leave and we would, uh, and we would love to, uh, chat with you and, uh, let, let Mary know that you heard her on the diner and, uh, and, uh, Mary, I can't wait to meet you again at shore leave. Likewise. Yeah. So miles, you want to take us on out of the show? Sure. Till next time. Good oh, wait, night. Wait. Um, did you have something you wanted to say? No, I actually thought like if somebody actually does walk up to you and says, "Hey, I heard you, I heard about you on the diner," I I'm gonna dig through like my bucket of like cool prizes and stuff that I've swag I've gotten from like Marvel, and I will have a prize for them. <laughs> there you go. There I you just go. have to hook up with Mary later and find yeah, out look, to make, confirm. Get like I name. need a selfie, and you. <laughs> And you post it, yes, a selfie with Mary, if you don't mind, Mary. I don't want anybody to invade your space without asking. Hey, um, me. <laughs> so post, post a selfie on the Sci-Fi Diner Facebook page, hashtag, and give me my prize, <laughs> and I'll have something cool for you. Sounds great. We will definitely do that. Awesome. <laughs> well, again, thank you for joining us, Mary. Miles, you want to take us back out of the show? All right. Till next time. Good night and good luck. We will see ya. Do your dailies. And that's a wrap. All right. Hey, thank Yay. you. Yay. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining us tonight. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. It's uh, yeah. been a real blast. Good. Good. Awesome. Well, we can't wait to see you just in a few short weeks. And uh, I think the rest of us have jobs we got to go to. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Adulting sucks. Uh, it really does. Can't we just talk about Star Trek all day? Let's just do uh, it. Do it. I would love that. I, that would be amazing. We all just need to be Will Wheaton. There is, <laughs> true. 
That's what we need to do. We need to have been on a Star Trek show and then spend our life doing really cool things, writing cool things. Like you, you're like halfway there. You're writing cool and amazing things. So there you go. You're almost Will Wheaton. There you go. (laughs) Hopefully I'm not the most hated character in the Star Trek universe. Uh, (laughs) No, no. Oh, and you know, that poor kid, like, yeah, I have been present at, I was, we were, so I go on the Jonathan Colton cruise, which is this really great nerd cruise with all these great musicians and artists and a lot of great writers and a lot of, and Will Wheaton goes on it. And there was someone who was being a little drinky and they went out, they just got into his face about the whole, like, just going into him about being Wesley. And I've read his books. He's a really great guy. And for him to just be very open and public about himself, I, I was joyful to watch a pile of nerds just kind of create this fortress of protection of Will (laughs) Wheaton. But like, even, even in his safe space of nerddom, there's always that one person who just beats on poor Wesley. And then like they hear him talk about what it was like being a kid on that show. And no wonder he was a crabby kid. <laughs> right. I really think the reason why Wesley was so obnoxious was not his fault. It was the writer's fault. It was. He hated it. Yeah. Just that character. That I know. Character. So that's like a whole nother show. That yeah. is. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much again for joining us and uh, great conversation. And I'll let you know, Mary, when it comes out. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Hey, take care, guys. Good night. Good night. night. Hey, Scott. Yep. So I was looking at the timing and I just realized um, I actually will be. It's July 6th. I'm taking the 5th and 6th off from work. So I will. I'll be there. Like, I could be there whenever. Okay. Um, but it is also a chance that, uh, so I told you that I'm, I, I, I don't know how much I've told you guys, but I've been on a, an eight week course of treatment for a tumor and it's going to get taken out, but we're not sure when, oh. um, it depends on how small it is and it could be, it actually could be that week. Um, oh. but I would still go because I, I, I need the time to goof off and be silly. So, um, just be aware of that could that could impact it. It could. It's either it, my goal is to have it that was to have it on July on like that week, so that I would have the time off and I could go to shore leave and just kind of rest. Um, and if that's the case, like if I disappear to my room, it's not because I'm being a jerk. I just got really really tired. Understand. Understand. Cool. Awesome. All right. And then if we find out Friday that it hasn't shrunk enough then it gets pushed off to the end of July and then it doesn't impact us at all. Okay. So you're going to find out by this Friday. Uh, so I get my scan, my second set of scans done on Friday and then on Tuesday we decide. Okay. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait to contact the Okudas again, because we're emailing directly back and forth now. Um, I'll wait till I hear from miles. Definitely. Whether you're going to be down there that Friday early and then M, if you can join us, that would be fantastic. Yeah. The likelihood of me being there by like three in the afternoon is very high. Okay, good. Even earlier, if it's like really nice out and I want to sit by the pool. Now, there you go. All right. Very good. Well, we'll cool. continue to chat online and we are, we will record in two weeks and, yep. and, um, and we can talk a little bit about more about what we're going to do with that show. So. Cool. 
All right. All right. We will catch all you guys um, later. Jo- we were supposed to remind you of something. Yes, it uh, was to uh, about- panels. Panels at Farpoint. Yes. For sure, shortly. To do bring, bring no, no, the live show. Live show. Do a live show. Live show. Also, are you guys watching? Um, we didn't get to really talk that much about what's on our what's in our world for sci-fi, but um, Cloak and Dagger. It's on Hulu right now. Yeah, I'm not. And it's watching on Freeform. It. It's a Marvel show. I have Can not seen it yet. Just... No. Okay. We, we just get... put a pin in that when you guys get a chance. Um, keep a lookout for that. Awesome. Well, we can talk about it maybe in the next show. Awesome sauce. All right. Good night, fellas. Hey, good night. Good night. I hope your job goes Thanks, better. Guys. It's. I mean, it's. I love my job, and things are going really, really well. Just long. I just. I'm. I didn't realize the new responsibility I was getting. Yeah. And I didn't realize how much people think I could really, you know. They clearly, clearly are snowed uh, by what they think I can do. Um, I've, I've, I've clearly like, I mean, I can do it. It's just, there's just a lot to do. And we've got a huge push for the next two weeks. And I really can't wait for the 4th of July week. Cause I'm regardless of surgery. Uh, I'm ready for a long weekend, awesome. long weekend. All right, guys. I'm All sorry. Right. Good night. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Good night. George and Gracie were originally going to be called Adam and Evie. That would have been a little too on the nose, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have. I like George and Gracie. All right. Well, anything else we should be uh, delving into before we wrap the show up? No. The only thing that really bugged me about the film is that the um, the tank that they had the the humpback whales in, it, it's, it's just too small. There's no way. It's just too small. Suspend like, your I, disbelief. I can't. No. Science tells me no. Science <laughs> being a total nerd tells me that's not possible. How can you fit a two humpback whales in that kind of space? Like, there's just that part of me that can't take it. Like, it's just too small a space for those giant, beautiful creatures. <laughs> Do you know who can answer that question? I bet the Okudas could answer that question. I'm sure. The other thing that I noticed, too, the whole, like, uh, making this movie kind of on the cheap is when Spock had his his um, the the headband on his head. It was really easy to tell that they did not bother to put the prosthetic on him. <laughs> uh, true. And I looked for that today, <laughs> and I thought, well, those ears are expensive. They're oddly at the time, at least in the '90s, when I was putting them on like stupid teenagers to walk around the park looking like a like a like a Vulcan or a Romulan. They were expensive. Yeah. So they're like, oh, my God, we just saved like six weeks of shooting ears by saving this time. And he could just get like makeup and then go. And he probably saved yeah. time. He was directing. Leonard Nemo was directing this movie at the time. So he probably saved time not having to uh, get those ears on and just just freed him up to direct the movie and act when he when he, he had to act in the movie. I don't know why that was important for me to look for, but it was just, it made me joyful to see like, Oh look, it's his real ears, but you really have to look and nobody has that kind of time, but me. no, no, absolutely not. Okay. So um, I, I apologize universe. Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, any other thoughts? 
I guess the one thing that bothered me was how easy the time travel was in this movie. Because they made it seem like you just punch in some numbers, swing around the sun, and you can go to whatever time period you want. And I'm like, well, in that case, why isn't Star Trek a time travel show if it's that easy? That bothered me a little bit. (laughs) I wonder if it's the volume of fuel that you need and the mathematical calculations to ensure that you go back to the right time. Because in other, like iterations of star trek it's usually pretty hard it's some transporter accident or some mega alien causes it here they're just like yeah let's just swing around the sun no big deal that's true miles any final thoughts here some great great uh dialogue in this movie um mccoy as usual has some of the best lines um he says something to the effect when he's trying to argue kirk out of not doing this he goes oh so basically we just traveled back in time get the whales, bring them back with us. So these whales could tell this probe what to do with itself. And Kirk's like, yeah, pretty much. You know? <laughs> uh, so I, I, that was always enjoyable. Just whatever McCoy was going to say, usually it was going to be funny. Um, He's just so cantankerous and he joyful. Is. He is. His Even- exchange with Spock uh, about uh, talking about what, 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 you know, life, death and, you know, Spock says, I can't really talk to you about it. You've never died before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and Spock's like, excuse me, doctor, I'm, um, I'm getting distress call, calls. And McCoy's like, I don't doubt it. You know? <laughs> no, there was a lot of good lines from that end. Mm-hmm. There's something about the character itself, too. That, like, even Carl Urban really delivered it in the Cal- delivers a very what's the it's a a a very nostalgic um mccoy yeah and i i really hope that it's true that he spent endless endless hours of watching uh deforest kelly and making sure that he he nailed it and in 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 having spent having watched the kelvin universe so much sooner so much more recently than um the original series universe um it 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 just felt like mccoy there was no difference like i see a difference in kirk i see a little difference in spock but i'm very pleased that the future as carl urban gets to play mccoy will get the same i i feel like the same kind of mccoy we had growing up well, very good. So where would you rate this Trek in the Trek movies that we watched so far? So we've only watched four so far in this kind of rewatch you've been doing. And where would you place it? Uh, would it be a, you know, let's put it out of four since we have four movies that we're kind of banking them against. It's my favorite. It's your favorite? Miles? It's my favorite. Oh, I would give it um, three and a half uh, humpback whales. And Mary, where would you place it in the line of the first four movies for you? Oh, that's tough because Wrath of Khan is also so good. But this one is, I don't know. I like them for different reasons. I feel like Wrath of Khan is a better film, but this one is more enjoyable to watch. So those two can never mm-hmm. to me. That's, that's probably a good assessment. I would probably pick this as being my favorite. But you're right that Wrath of Khan, perhaps the better written story. Well, good. Well, I think we did a good job of kind of reviewing this movie and rewinding it and rewatching it and discussing it. Uh, before we go, Mary, can you remind us once again where we can find out more about what's going on in your writing world and, and, and everything else about you that we want to know? 
Sure. Um, go to my website, www.maryfan.com. That's M-A-R-Y-F-A-N. And there I have all the info about my books and such, and also links to my social media. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight as we discuss this film. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. It and, was a blast. Uh, and people, go give her your money. Go on Amazon right now. Yeah, buy her books. <laughs> give her your money. <laughs> just send Just send her a check. <laughs> don't even buy the books. Just you know, whatever. No. And if you if you want a chance to meet Mary, she's going to be at Shore Leave. We're going to be at Shore Leave, and we would uh, and we would love to uh, chat with you and uh, let let Mary know that you heard her on the diner. And uh, and uh, Mary, I can't wait to meet you again at Shore Leave. Likewise. Yeah. So Miles, you want to take us on out of the show? Sure. Till next time. Good oh, wait, night. Wait. Um, did you have something you wanted to say? No, I actually thought like if somebody actually does walk up to you and says, "Hey, I heard I heard about you on the diner," I I'm gonna dig through like my bucket of like cool prizes and stuff that I've swag I've gotten from like Marvel, and I will have a prize for them. There you go. There <laughs> I you just go. have to hook up with Mary later and find yeah, out the, to make, confirm. Get like I name. need a selfie, and you <laughs> and you post it. Yes, a selfie with Mary. If you don't mind, Mary, I don't want anybody to invade your space without asking. Hey, um, me. <laughs> so post post a selfie on the Sci-Fi Diner Facebook page, hashtag M Give Me My Prize, <laughs> and I'll have something cool for you. Sounds great. We will definitely do that. Awesome. <laughs> well, again, thank you for joining us, Mary. Miles, do you want to take us back out of the show? All right. Till next time. Good night and good luck. We will see ya. Do your dailies. If you've enjoyed the conversation, the owners of this establishment would love to hear from you. Send your comments and feedback to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. <laughs>